Welcome to Dungeons & Dinners, where the love of fantasy is food for thought. I'm your host, Brett Lindley, and today I'm taking a bit of time to review the most recent expansion to 5th edition D&D, Tasha's Cauldron of Everything. Welcome! Take a seat anywhere. We'll be right with you. Alright, and here it is, Tasha's Cauldron of Everything. I've been looking forward to this release for a little while for a couple of reasons that we'll get into. But first, I want to go over just kind of uh, a little bit about what it is, kind of the size of the book, uh, and just a bit of reference to what this review is going to be about. I don't plan on doing a super in-depth review. I'm not going to go over every spell and subclass and detail. I've, uh, Like I said in my first episode, I, I don't read them cover to cover, but I did a pretty healthy skimming of the book and uh, some in-depth reading on you know, places, classes, features that I'm interested in or just kind of thinking about uh, potentially using in one of my own sessions or in my own world building. And the book is split uh, pretty healthily through a few different sections. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to focus generally on the kind of bulkier sections that the book is split into. And I'll give uh, some independent thoughts, some some individual details on certain things that really kind of piqued my interest. But then I'm going to more or less do kind of an overall review of just my initial thoughts on the book. I've had the book for eh, about a week or so, not quite. And uh, I haven't, you know, like I said, I'm not I'm not reading it word for word every single night. I've been kind of picking it up here and there and skimming through it and just judging my different thoughts on a few things. I also want to say that, uh, you know, as I mentioned in the the first episode, I'm not a super rules as written player. Uh, so I take a lot of these things with a grain of salt as I, you know, read through them and I look more at what a rule can kind of overall do for me than what the very specific rule is. And what I mean by that is that if it opens up some opportunities and some ideas that I hadn't thought of before, that to me is a much more engaging rule than than a very specific change that may alter a very specific metagame or, or power gaming style build or something like that. And, and while I believe those rules are really important, I'm a lot more interested in some of the opportunities that some more broader changes may present. So with that, uh, the Tasha's Cauldron of Everything is a pretty decently sized book. It's not the most massive that's been released in the series. I also want to note I don't own every single book, uh, especially not all the campaign guides, but I own a good chunk of them, uh, especially the ones that kind of offer more generalized expansions rather than specific guides. So I think I'm still missing like Eberron and Ravnica, and I don't generally purchase the adventure modules, although that's slowly changing. So anyway, uh, Tasha's Cauldron and Everything. It's uh, just under 200 pages, so it's 192 pages total. And in my opinion, it's split into about kind of three to four main parts. So the most significant portion uh, of the book, coming in at over 70 pages-ish, is character options uh, and this is going to be player character stuff so this is everything from the new kind of racial creation rules 
to classes, subclasses, feats, and uh, expanded options for base classes that either add or can potentially replace certain class abilities for base classes. Everything that's presented in Tasha's Cauldron and everything really has, uh, there's multiple places where there's kind of disclaimers that these are not hard changes. These are DM approval changes, which I really appreciate. It's something that I I really did love, uh, you know, D&D 3.5. Uh, I was I have still have more 3.5 books than I have, um, you know, 5.0 books, and that's that's third edition, um, and the 3.5 was kind of an enhancement of third edition. But regardless, I I have quite a few third edition books, and there's a lot of stuff in those books that's awesome. There's a lot of really cool rules and monsters and classes. But one of the things that really kind of bothered me in third edition, especially as a dungeon master, was how much having all of these options put almost too much power into players' hands. And in in a way that kind of rule it almost encouraged rules lawyering and power gaming. Because a lot of times while it was kind of you know mentioned briefly or somewhat of an unwritten rule that the dungeon master was the the final say and you know there are some places where it mentions that but it's it seemed to make less of a point of clarifying that and more of a point of saying these you know all of these options are available and if your dungeon master doesn't own a hundred different books that you're referencing to build your character with then you know that's on them not on you and a lot of DMs would, you know, state that they would only allow a certain number of books to be used for building a class or building a character or running the game or et cetera. It, it's still just an overflow of content that made it very difficult to fully balance things around the core classes because there were so many prestige classes and so many options that you just couldn't do that. And one thing that I really like about 5th edition is the push towards more narrative play and a push towards at least some better semblance of balance. Of course, there's a lot of argument about what that really means and power gaming still exists. I don't think that's something that you can really get rid of in any system um, that offers any real flexibility. But the focus on saying that you have to get your Dungeon Master's approval for this stuff um, just encourages communication at the table it, it really is something that of course as a dungeon master i want to make sure that my players get to play the characters that they want to play and as a player i want to be able to have a position to you know vet my character to a dungeon master and say hey i would really like to play this character i really think that it should have these changes though and and here's why instead of saying the book says i can play this so you're wrong to tell me i can't it just encourages more open communication and allows people to get together to more openly discuss. There's more of a focus on almost printed house rules. Uh, and while Unearthed Arcana is much more that, and of course they still have to balance for arena play or, or pick up games at conventions and stuff where the rules are played as written, 
the books seem a lot closer to being a lot more optional things and stating that they're optional and stating that they need you know everybody to agree on them and to and to come to a consensus on what rules are used in in my opinion that is probably one of the bigger advantages of fifth edition is just that it's it's a little bit more open and there's a little bit more consistent and constant reminder that this is a game that everybody agrees on together. It's a game of fantasy. It's a game of fun. It's about enjoyment. Everybody's supposed to be having fun here. So whatever it takes to bring that to your table, then that's what they're going to print. So I, I love the number of mentions. Uh, there's at least, and like I said, without reading every word, there's at least, I think, three times that I've caught it on top of almost all of the class replacement options and racial replacement options all talk about the the optionality of it. And I think that that's something that a lot of dungeon masters and a lot of players that I've played with all agreed upon anyway was that all of the rules are optional. This is just a, you know, a narrative storytelling device for friends to get together to, to play with. And so I think that that was already something that was kind of agreed upon, but having it a little bit more explicitly explained and reminded and and pushed, I don't know. I personally really approve of it. And to see that coming through the book is something that's a really good reminder, especially in a core expansion like this, where it's not just a setting, it's something that's more of a universal set of rules that are being made available. I don't know. Love to see it. So with that said... 70 pages of character options. Every single class gets something. Um, most get two or three things, which is is really, it's a lot. And I am going to admit that's probably where I skipped the most information because more often than not, I go in with an idea of what I want a character to be and then start browsing the options for how to make that work rather than going in and seeing a specific option and going, that's what I want to play. But that's not to say that it doesn't happen, and it's already happened a couple of times just with stuff in Tasha's that I'm really excited to see. So first and foremost, uh, for those that don't know me personally, I love artificers in like every game and feel that they're so underrepresented underrepresented in the kind of fantasy role-playing space. The tinkerers... Uh, the builders, the crafters, it, it's just a very difficult class to play without a core class. And it, they really are, uh, Eberron kind of introduced it, and this is not an entire rewrite of what Eberron introduced, but it is definitely a pretty moderate adjustment. They took some stuff from the uh, Unearthed Arcanas and, and included that, uh, specifically the Armorer, which I was really excited about. Now, there's been some hyperbolic arguments around the efficacy of the armorer, uh, especially because they've been slightly nerfed in the official release from the UA. Uh, but I mean, it's it's really kind of minor. And in other ways, a lot of the other, you know, artificer classes got some some buffs as well. And you'll see people go back and forth about anything, though. So I haven't taken that too much into account. Because again, I'm not trying to power game the class. I think that if a character is not fun to play, then it's up to you and your DM and your gameplay style to figure out 
where you might want to adjust that balance. If your dungeon master plays very combat heavy and you don't have very many combat options or things, you know, the way the rules are written just don't balance out for the campaign or the world that you're in, then adjust the rules as long as it's something that you talk openly about. And, you know, if, if, but if everybody's kind of in the middle and average, then so be it. I also don't play a lot of, um, really high level campaigns so I can't speak to the power creep of characters that get up there. But in my opinion, I think that the armorer is, you know, pretty pretty well balanced, pretty well a utility character. They're not made to be, uh, you know, really they're a jack of all trades character, which I kind of love. And you can build them in a bunch of different directions, which I also love. Uh, the only disappointment that I really have is that they replaced uh, Shield with Thunderwave on the spell spellcasting list. I feel like Thunderwave is—it's not a bad spell, but a lot of the Armorer's abilities, especially the Guardian, is all about getting enemies in close, and Thunderwave is not good for a stealthy approach. And in a, in a big battle, if you've got all the enemies on top of you—I mean, it has its utility. It, it's a, not a bad spell, but I definitely preferred— building for an AC tank uh, in the Guardian armor and then having the option for the Infiltrator to, you know, take away some of those things. I do actually really like, a lot of people are kind of against it, the Infiltrator armor in the UA version uh, was basically said that you don't have, it removes the penalty for stealthing in heavy armor, which allowed you to get advantage on stealth checks if you were wearing like plate mail or something, whereas in, but it would only be for heavy armor. Whereas in the official release, it just always gives you advantage on stealth checks. So this means that you get advantage on stealth checks for lighter armors while you're working your way up to plate mail or heavy armor. Uh, or if you just want to wear lighter armor and not play as, you know, the ultra tank, again, leaving those modifications and options open to the player and it removes the disadvantage from being able to stealth in plate mail and since you can't get advantage uh more from more more than one source it doesn't stack uh you basically don't get advantage on stealth checks but it makes it a straight roll which i think is still it's definitely not broken and i think it tones it down in a way that opens it up more than it nerfs it i think gaining advantage on lighter armors and having those options to be able to use different playstyles and not kind of being guided toward plate, uh, while also getting to play with the you know leaving that option open to play with plate and getting a decent check and not always being a disadvantage there, I I think it it opens things up. It does mean that you're not going to get advantage from you know blessings of the trickster or things like that while in plate. Um, whereas that's something that you might have been able to, to kind of finagle your way into. But it, it really isn't. Because there's no double advantage, there's not a lot of ways that you would be getting that anyway. And so not having it here is fine, but also opening it up for the earlier levels, I, I definitely don't think, you know, certainly not before level 3 and probably not before level you know 4 to 6, you should be having 1,500 gold worth of plate mail on. Um, so, I mean, it depends on... on how you're running, but again, rushing to those kinds of things kind of nullifies the joy that, in my opinion, is available in earlier level campaigns. So seeing a lot of stuff for the Artificer and the Armor, really excited about it. I like the build. I love that, uh, and this is kind of a universal thing, but for most 
pets and summoned creatures or, uh, you know, a, a bonus creature that you get as part of your class are starting to move towards more uh, advantages and bonuses based on your character's level or your proficiency bonus or your per, or, you know stats with certain skills or certain you know bonuses that you have being applied to your creature to give it a bonus, uh, which means that the creatures scale more with the player. So they'll have more hit points. They're not just going to have five hit points at level six and die in a single hit or something like that. So seeing those changes, I'm really excited about as well. Um, I don't really think that they changed anything else too heavily, in my opinion, uh, from the Artificer, from how it was presented before. Again, small tweaks, and some people may say that those small tweaks are bigger things, but for me, just seeing them being printed as an official option uh, really does make me happy, and I, I hope that you know eventually we get some level of alchemist or artificer, you know, as a base class in the core D&D group. Because I think it really is the the Batman character, the kind of utility jack-of-all-trades class, kind of a skill monkey class that, you know, used to be something that rogues or wizards may have maintained more of, but I think is more kind of specialized for them. And I love it. I love seeing it. So really happy for that. A couple of other big things that I took of note uh, from character, the character options section, that 70 page chunk, uh, the enhanced class options. So this is somewhat of a rebalancing made available for a lot, if not all of the base classes get something in here where you either get an additional class feature or a class feature that you can replace something in the core rulebook with. This opens up a lot of opportunities for customization to build characters in certain directions, as well as taking some of the classes that were maybe thought of as weaker classes that didn't have as many options or were just quote-unquote bad picks, and giving them a couple of things that buffs them up. Uh, so it's, it's nice to see some of those abilities come through. And the plethora of subclasses. So I'm three of them really catch my eye right out the gate. Uh, the Druid Circle of Stars. I love seeing a Druid that is, again, it's still kind of nature-based, but it allows for that play to be used in, you know, different ways, like building it more as not necessarily a covered-in-leaves Druid, but even just a more kind of real-world classical Druid, somebody that is a writer, a documenter of information, and a studier of astronomy. So it gives you that kind of wizard but not, and focused on astronomy and, you know, studying the stars and having different ways to play with that. Love it. I love the Druid of the Stars. Really, really cool class, being able to use your wild shape to kind of gain the semi-astral form. Really cool. I think there's a lot of fun narrative things that you can do with that, and theming your spells, which I'll talk about later. Um, another really good idea. There's a lot of thematic options in the Druid of the Stars and or the Circle of Wildfire, I think is a really fun Druid. Having a fire pet and, and using your wild shape to summon kind of your guardian fire pet, I think it's super cool. And there's a lot of fun that can be had there. Uh, and then there's another, you know, interesting kind of change. There was a, a prestige class from 3.5 that I used and something that may come out. I may talk about that eventually, but the Swarm Keeper uh, is kind of a combination of the Swarm Lord 
and uh, the the Master of Flies, I think. There's something something like that. I know that's not the exact name, but it's something like that. Kind of combined, but moved to the Ranger, which I thought was... At first, I was kind of like, this is not, you know not the best pick for that. I think it was more of an int-based class, but I could be wrong and, and misremembering stuff that I'm like 10 years ago. But having it be a ranger subclass, I actually thought was really cool once I started, you know, thinking about it. Having uh, a constant swarm of insects as essentially your animal companion and being able to use it to cast various spells and and just kind of affect the world the swarm keeper super and getting things like minor versions of the swarm teleport uh all all really cool things that i was really excited by and seeing that under ranger i, I you know like i said i didn't didn't think it was going to work at first but after really kind of reading through the class i was I, I decided it is a pretty good fit i think it's a fun way to play a ranger and an interesting way to again really just those big thematic things that you can do with them so lots of fun places to go there. Uh, after that, the other kind of big thing about Tasha's Cauldron, and that's been hinted at for a while, and I thought originally they were just straight up shut down for 5th edition, but have decided to bring in, is Psionics. So Psionics and Psychic subclasses are here. Uh, you get, there. I think there's at least three or four Psionic subclasses with some that could kind of be played as psionic, but may not have been, aren't specific reprints, but things like the Soul Knife, which was a really fun rogue psionics class, comes back. So now, uh, you know, being able to throw your your psi knives, and uh, there's a few additional kind of telekinetic classes, or the psionic warrior with, you know, psychic shields and things like that. And they're not too overbalanced in my opinion i think if anything they may have been kind of holding back a little bit just because psionics was so powerful and almost its own system uh there is some playing with the psionics dice but not really anything over the top or any different than sorcery points and metamagic and things like that so it's it's still kind of a familiar thing having the psionics dice i it seemed a little bit weird in a couple of spots, but I'm sure that's something that a couple of, you know, just reading the rules over a little bit more would probably clarify. Uh, and with that, of course, there's going to be a few, all of the psionics are basically treated as spells, which is kind of good to see, not having that be a split uh, in the rules or the magic system of the game. I'm fine with that. And just seeing, I, I personally like psionics. I think that it's one of those things that opening up, if you crack open D&D rules and use all of the rules but change the setting entirely, so if you want to play a more futuristic campaign or something and you want to get a little bit more out there with how you treat the rules, having some things like that and some examples of how that works makes it a lot easier for a, a DM to make that transition and build a different, you know, almost rule set using the rules that are there. So I'm happy to see Psionics come in. I think it's a fun thing to have as a part of the game, and it's good to see these classes come in. That I think they were a lot of these subclasses were all prestige classes from uh, third edition, and seeing them come in as subclasses is I think it just makes things again easier and keeps from having 
too many things. Of course, the more of these that are added, the more that multi-classing can be a thing and potentially find huge breaks to the rules, but that's always been the case. And I just like seeing them come in as kind of options that are obvious, like obvious pathways to take a character just kind of being added to that character class instead of having to hunt and peck through dozens of different books to find the perfect combination of classes to prestige into to get the character that you want. So happy with all that. Uh, Let's see. One last thing from the character options area that I just have to hit on is the cooking feat. Ah, I'm so excited to see this. It's something that I, I, again, in the real world, this podcast is Dungeons and Dinners, and I like to cook, and I like to, again, things that are thematic, uh, but when they're thematic and have purpose, that just makes me so happy. So the cooking feat offers a couple of things. Uh, You get a, a stat bonus to, I think, Constitution or Wisdom, and you get kind of two special abilities from cooking. One of them is if you cook a meal during a short rest, you can, a certain number of creatures, like four plus your proficiency modifier or whatever, uh, anyone that takes or uses any dice for hit dice to heal with during a short rest, get to add one D8 to their healing if they partake in the dinner. Which is, again, nothing huge, kind of fun. Again, just adding something above the theme, anything above the theme is great. And you can also spend some time cooking up tasty treats and you can make a bunch of tasty treats that get, if anybody eats them, they get temporary hit points equal to your proficiency bonus when you cooked them. Nothing huge. This is not like a game-breaking number of temporary hit points. It replaces ones that you had previously because you can't stack them. But again, in a way to have a kind of a minor healer that's maybe more of an outside-of-the-battle healer in places where you don't have a cleric or maybe in addition to a cleric that maybe wants to be more battle and doesn't just want to cast Cure Wounds every round. Uh, I think super fun. Super excited to see that. And I I just had to laugh because it it fit the theme of the show. So, of course, I have to include it. But I am actually really excited that that's a feat that's available. Not sure that I could take it over, like, a two-weapon fighting. Uh, It's one of those things that I might bargain for as a a starting feat for a character. (laughs) Um, the next section, about 20 pages, is all on patrons. Uh, it's subdivided into two sections, kind of your individual patrons for warlocks. Uh, there's several new patrons, such as the genie, um, which I really like seeing more non-necessarily evil patrons available for genies. Uh, or not, sorry, <laughs> not available for genies, available for warlocks, because not every warlock has to be basically evil character who is either actually evil or fighting against their own bad decision to join some evil thing and and make that some kind of mandatory part of their character and therefore of the overarching story that you're trying to play. Having some more neutral or, or maybe mischievous patrons and just some more options for warlock patrons I think is a good thing because... Every, uh, not every game, but several of the games that I've been involved in where there's a warlock, there's usually contention in the party, especially in the same way that a hyper good lawful good paladin can be sort of a a catch. I find that most parties that aren't already set out as a group to be pure evil or pure good generally fall into the kind of neutral area with large sprinklings of chaos. So be that chaotic neutral directly or just 
you know, a bunch of moral paradigms falling in between chaotic good and kind of neutral evil. So, <laughs> um, but there's also a good se- portion of the section, and probably the majority of this section is spent on group patrons, which is something that I'm really happy to see being presented in a decent manner and, and a decent number of pages dedicated to it. And group patrons just means when you start the game or maybe at some point during the game, you come across a a person or a company or a creature of high level or repute that basically says your whole party is going to work f- towards a certain goal or under a certain entity and take part in having that be your job as as the whole party. So it's presented in a number of different ways. There's a, a bunch of different examples as well as benefits and how to run things like working under a corporation or having everybody work for a certain powerful noble and how you can get you know different various bonuses or pay uh, both actively and passively and earning in and out of you know combat or not in and out of combat in and out of adventure income like passive income. I think having group patrons is a great way to get your characters to start together or to work towards a common goal or just to have more options of things that directly affect the world outside of killing the big bad evil guy or subverting evil or good in some way. Being able to feel like you're influencing the world through growing a business or you know adjusting the popularity of your your patron and, and helping them out in some way just opens up a lot of opportunities for players to get creative in things that are outside of battle but also don't have to just be that one individual you know charisma check to influence some wealthy person it's actually kind of an ongoing sort of thing so seeing group patrons uh it's also as patrons like being in a militia are having, you know, kind of a military-style patron, a religious-style patron, like all of you following the same cult or religion or, you know, deity or thing like that, um, and as well as kind of more fae or uh, otherworldly patrons, all of it, seeing it as options for groups to come together to get group bonuses, really, really cool, love it. Uh, it it's kind of funny because I just recently picked up a... Uh, external uh, Dungeons and Dragons 5th edition supplement called Acquisitions Incorporated, which is essentially an entire book based off of uh, having a group patron be a company that you grow within and build assets for and run missions for and things like that. So um, that book may get uh, touched on or reviewed at a separate time, but it was pretty decent. So and seeing this being an extension of that, basically, having a small section versus an entire book on it and seeing how they compare and contrast, really kind of interesting. Of course, moving on from there, we've got uh, updated spells and magic items. So there's about 30 pages here. Most of these pages devoted to magic items. Uh, a few spells got reprinted with slight changes to rules. Uh, you know, Booming Blade and Green Flame Blade, I think, are the biggest contentions on the internet as far as how and what changed. To me, the changes aren't that hugely significant, but again, I've never really built toward a power gaming or metagaming purpose that, you know, a single minor change to a spell is going to break my build. And also, again, you know, we're getting into optional territory where 
unless you're playing Adventure League very seriously, these are things that you can talk with your DM about and say, hey, you know, can we use the old version for this build? And if the DM goes, no, that one shots everything that I throw at you or breaks our game, I'd prefer using the new build. Well, you know, maybe take one on the nose and, and say, hey, the, the enjoyment of the of the DM being able to build things that don't one shot you in return uh, may be worth the sacrifice. So I don't think either of those spells were really that outlandish. Um, you know, I have seen some builds around them, but again, I think the changes there are fine. Most of the other spells are kind of split between uh, adding the psychic abilities and psychic damage spells and defense spells and things like that to the table. Uh, as well as everybody gets a summon spell, like everyone. Uh, so <laughs> there's summon clockwork, there's more summon beasts. It, essentially, all of the summon 1 through 5 or 9 or whatever that was available in some of the older editions comes back as kind of a single summon spell that, again, ha- you summon a creature that, that scales with your character or scales with your spell level uh, or both. And... So seeing that come in is fine. I'm not against more summons. Uh, I don't think I would want everyone at the table having a class that had a summon because it just gets the action economy gets really weird when you do that. But I also like seeing it as an option for players to take. So again, something where I'm totally all about seeing it. I I did have to laugh, though, that there was basically an, an individual summon spell for every single type of summon that you could have which almost equates to type of class i think there's like three or five of them it was just i don't know i had to giggle i thought it was funny the magic items uh there's a lot of cool ones there's at least three or four really interesting magic spell books that i saw which is really cool i i like seeing more magical spellcasting focuses that really change how a class can play uh there's an artificer one and kind of a universal tool kind of thing which i thought was really cool and a few other, like I said, the spell books were really what I focused on. There's some interesting crystals. Uh, there's dangerous attunement, which is presented as a rule for a very specific construct. Um, and while I don't think that construct itself is something that I really want to try to balance, uh, having dangerous attunement, I thought it was a really interesting idea. So again, places where, you know, I can pick a rule out of something to apply it to something else. And have something where it, it's not necessarily a cursed item, but it's something that may be a very high utility item that would encourage a player to attune off of it to to have a separate, a, a different item be attuned more often, but having to attune back to it could have dangerous side effects, uh, I think is, especially when attunement is going to be one of those things that happen before or after a long rest sort of thing, uh, endangering the party when they're uh, low on spells. Maybe we'll use one of those big summons and and summon a monster from one of the random summon spells that are available have that happen while you're trying to attune to it could be really fun so uh seeing that was just kind of interesting there's tons of other magic items again not going to get into all of them uh but i enjoy the variety because i tend to to not necessarily use magic items directly from the book but i get my ideas based off of them as you can kind of see and finally uh, the second biggest portion of the book, surprisingly, is the whole end of the section under uh, Dungeon Master Tools, basically, stuff for DMs. Uh, there's about 50 pages. However, most of that is puzzles, or at least a good maybe two-thirds of that is puzzles, but I'm not against that. I think having uh, some puzzles in there to teach Dungeon Masters you know, what, what D&D puzzles can look like and how you can run them. 
uh, is kind of really is nice to see have in or see as a thing to be in there and have as a tool to treat, teach uh, dungeon masters just some variety and give some examples on how it can play out. Especially, uh, really something that I liked in here is the kind of hint roll, uh, where you can use certain stats to roll against, like perception or just end and wisdom rolls to get certain hints about how the puzzle works. I don't necessarily agree with the puzzles that they chose or all of them. There is a good uh, half a dozen or more of them in there. Some of them don't really have, in my opinion, the same types of logical conclusions, and they may be thinking that uh, some players are much more into puzzles than many of them are. Uh, some I've, I've found that the simplest uh, children's puzzle when thrown at a, a four-person party can become the most complex thing in the universe to them. And that's not a knock on them. It's just one of those things that when you're in the heat of the moment, the clues aren't always obvious or somebody can say something that derails everyone's train of thought. And sometimes it depends on if you're providing visuals or not. The theater of their mind can be a really dangerous place to try to put puzzles in. But also some puzzles become too easy or too obvious when you draw it all out. So it is a fine balance. I'm glad to see that they're in there. Um, I think that having those examples is great, whether or not I agree with all the puzzles that are in there or if I would put all of them to use in my campaign. It's still nice to see them talked about and and say hey this is how you can run puzzles and riddles this is how you can give hints to your party and make sure that your puzzles and riddles have a flow to them that players can get through in more than one way and have options to be able to fail forward so to speak the other uh couple of things that are in the dm tools section uh that i really love uh, we'll go over, you know, kind of in reverse order. So environmental hazards and supernatural regions. This is something that I've seen used and played with in various ways. Uh, but it's, again, good to see it in a printed, you know, printed edition. And it's really just talking about play having more than just the place you go to be told visually, having it actually affect your players, whether it, you know, by design and by obvious reason, people may go there for certain things or, you know, something that your players stumble into and don't realize that that's what's in this area. Uh, changing magic. Maybe it increases healing. When everybody takes a short rest, uh, they just get bonus healing and, you know, it's a very serene lake or something like that. Or having magical effects change. Maybe wild magic surges for everybody that uses magic or you know, a whole bunch of different things, and as well as dangerous areas that could be haunted, uh, could be, you know, swamps, uh, different types of poisons, and just ways that the land affects travel, affects gameplay, and can add a sense of wonder or mystery or adventure that can either accentuate something like a battlefield, or even outside of battle could make things a little bit more interesting as your party travels. I love it. There's another, again, a good half dozen to dozen uh, supernatural reason regions and environmental hazards that it throws out there as examples. All, a lot of them really detailed, some with multiple tables to roll through, uh, or you can just pick and choose your specific effects that you want for your campaign. But tons of ideas, nevertheless, for how to use these types of environments in your game and how to provide actual bonuses or changes to the ways players play. Uh, maybe it's just cheaper to revive people there, and therefore, a you know, there if that's the case, and anyone else in the world realizes this, then a cleric's temple is going to build there, or multiple, 
and then you could have conflict, you know? Everybody wants to be able to arrive there, so it's the only neutral ground for all the different religions or something like that. Again, just that's just off the top of my head things that come to mind when reading through this types of material and i i love it when it's that easy to generate ideas and content so environmental hazards and supernatural regions big thumbs up love it finally the last and possibly the biggest thing that i like seeing in this book is a a few pages dedicated to social contracts and the session zero and these are things that I have learned and tried to improve over my time in playing and hosting various games. It's something that I try to get better at every time. But seeing it presented in rules kind of in a little bit crunchier fashion, again, not as rules really, but just a conversation between the people that made the game and the people that play it is talking about really talking to your players and setting the stage and understanding things like phobias and fears. Uh, Not everybody can do theater of the mind very well or visualize very well. So talking to your players about, do we need maps? Uh, Just having the social contracts of what is acceptable, what is kind of a soft line, and what is a hard line of things that I am willing to participate in within the game. You know, is intergroup romance something that you're okay with? Uh, And, and, is everybody okay with it? And it presents a couple of different ways of going about that at the table. Uh, I've got a, a few more that I think I, I can expand upon and I think could have been expanded upon uh, in in the game, or in the book, rather. Uh, and But I think that just having the conversation, having a session zero where people get to build their characters together or talk about what the world is going to be, make sure that Everybody's comfortable with the amount of magic and technology that's going to be available and the options that will be available to characters, what types of backgrounds may be preferred or dissuaded against, and, and just what types of, do you want lot, does everybody want lots of combat and the DM is more of an exploration DM? Uh, you, you know, talking about those things is important. And so I think having some pages in there talking about social contracts in Session Zero, while I probably would have preferred to see that come in a DMG, it's nice to see it coming in some expansion. And it seems like I think Tasha's is going to be a fairly popular expansion since things like, uh, you know, Xanathar's and Tasha's don't come out every month anymore. Um, since they're a little bit more sporadic, I think more people are going to pick it up and hopefully read through that section and, and take that and apply it to their games. Because I think it is something that it's it's not thought about as much. And it's caused a a number of games that I've played in to kind of fall apart after a while, either because things weren't properly defined from everybody involved or just conflict resolution was, you know, something that wasn't very clear. And so when it comes up and it will, it's, you know, better to have at least set the foundation for getting over that hurdle in the beginning than it is trying to come up to that in the middle of a session or halfway through a campaign. So I'm really happy to see social contracts and session zero be mentioned and just how to talk to your players how to bring things up how to set everybody's expectations super good very happy to see it so that kind of brings me to my overall thoughts overall thoughts is i'm happy with it i don't think that at 200 pages it's not completely earth shattering um but with The bulk of those pages being applied to kind of character creation, really, and character options, I'm actually 
really all about that. I, I didn't really even go into kind of the build your own race or the racial customizer that's there. I'm, I've always been a fan of that. I think that's something that a lot of dungeon masters have just played with, uh, especially anybody that house rules any at all. You don't have to be, you can be a smart orc, you know, you can be an intelligent barbarian. You can, you can even be a dwarf on the tall side or, uh, you know, the child of an elf and a dwarf, or you, you know, it's, these are not, these are not laws of reality. They're rules of a game. And while there's people and there's purists and there's people out there that want to play raw, that's fine. But there's also people out there that play home only homebrew and build their own tabletop RPG and, and throw all of the rule books out the window and build, make their own PDFs and scratch pads and one notes and things. So Having some of that be an option, at least presented as an option, and say, hey, there's more than one way to play, and it's okay if you want to have something that's maybe slightly outside of the traditional norm, uh, I think is awesome. And I think there's some outrage culture around what's politically correct and who's bending to who or what. I don't really think that that's really should be the focus. I think that being able to say that it's a game and you could play it however you want I think is awesome. I think overall, uh, again, all of the class options, there's a lot of really cool things that I haven't touched on. Uh, options in barbarians and fighters and battle masters and tactics and monks that, are, you know, the monk of the astral body is really cool. Like having m more of these characters that can fit into any campaign, but still be really unique in their own right. Ah, I just love it. So I do love that. I don't think the rules are super earth-shattering. It looks like Psionics is very gently introduced uh, with a few class options and a couple of spells available. Um, I think that's good. Um, while it is something that you could have, you know, the expanded Psionics manual 1 and 2 be reprinted and brought in, I don't think it's really something that's necessary for the game. Uh, but again, like I said, it's not something that I didn't want to see completely excluded either. So bringing in psionics and, and kind of more solidifying artificers outside of Eberron, really happy with that. Um, overall, I think most th this book is mostly going to apply to players um, for building new characters with. DMs get quite a few pages, but a lot of it is more informational stuff that I think more experienced DMs already do. Uh, so outside of that, just having, uh, you know, a few more magic items, a few updated spells, uh, a couple of feats and running group patrons. I think that for newer DMs or people that haven't played as much D&D, this is a great time to pick it up and experience, look at different ways that a game can be experienced, uh, the different types of terrain having actual effects and maybe even magical or mystical ones, building social contracts through a session zero, and just having some classes and feats and character designs that you may have never thought of before. I think it's a great place for people that want more of a homebrew feel, but are cautious or worried that their homebrew rules may break the game or be too OP or just aren't as experienced with building their own content. Uh, or especially when it comes to modifying and tweaking classes and the world. I think that this is a great opportunity to have a sort of middle ground between diving off into homebrew for your first time, worried if everybody's going to be overpowered or killed in the first hit, and being rules as written and really stagnant. So I think it's a very interesting middle ground book of very optional things. 
and opening up that discussion of what should be allowed in your game and what type of game you want to play, both from a player and DM perspective. I think this book accomplishes that in a marvelous way, and I think it is definitely worth a pickup. I don't think that it's something that you should really skip on uh, unless you're already very if you're already you know using 90 percent of your classes come from home brewery then this may not do too much for you um but again i do feel like there's something for everybody in here and i think that it, it presents things in a, in a pretty decent manner uh i think that overall yeah i give it i give it thumbs up i think it's good i think it's a fun book i think it's worth the pickup uh i'm not terribly disappointed in it and it's a book that i'm going to come back to over and over again uh, again, mostly since I don't read cover to cover, uh, and be able to discover something new every time. Maybe that's just me. If you're a cover to cover person, you're probably going to discover it all once and that's it. But for me, I think being able to come back to it and really dig into some of the various classes and character options, as well as environments and, uh, magic items and feats, all great stuff. And the group patrons too, there's so much comment content in the group patrons that I just, it's going to take a few times going through, and every time I'm going to want to run an entire campaign out of just you know two pages worth of rules. So uh, with that, I think I'll wrap things up. So yeah, good, good book, good time, worth buy. So that's all for the episode today. Please let me know your thoughts. There's a number of ways you can get a hold of me, all of which will be available through the show notes. If you're looking for more content, check out my other podcast, Pick Up Your Sticks, which is a podcast about why gaming matters, co-hosted by myself and longtime friend Walker Near. I'm really excited to be sharing this journey with you, and remember, love is the secret ingredient. Have a good day, friend. Thanks for stopping by.